2: Hello, this
4: is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, here with a very special bonus episode. I sat down with Professor Avid McMaster, who has become a Twitter friend and so graciously offered to come onto the show and defend the Aeneid. And frankly, I needed it. I needed someone who knows more than me about it to come on and explain to me why, yes, it may have been one of the most frustrating epics to cover on the podcast, but that doesn't mean it's bad or not worth our time. The Aeneid is actually incredible, so important, and beautifully written. And Dr. McMaster does an incredible job defending it on this episode. I will say we recorded it back in mid-December, so I hadn't yet covered the last two episodes of The Aeneid that you have heard, Um, so any of my, you know, opinions and thoughts in my episode with Dr. McMaster don't reflect my having now finished The Aeneid. But I think this is the perfect place for it. You have all heard my crazy 14-part retelling, where, uh, frankly, I just, you know, I had trouble. It's the, the trouble was creating episodes out of it, succinct, summary episodes that were entertaining. The trouble was not actually the Aeneid itself. And that is why this episode you are about to listen to is so important. So sit back and enjoy. This was such a joy to record, and I learned so much, and honestly, my mind has been completely changed about the Aeneid, and I think you'll really enjoy this. This is the bonus episode, Why We Should Give Aeneas a Chance, with Dr. Avon McMaster. So thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I need I need someone to tell me why why I need to love Aeneas and why my listeners should ignore a lot of what I've said about <laughs> Aeneas throughout the now I've, I think I've done 12 episodes on him and we're not done yet. It's somehow going to end up being my longest of the epics, <laughs> even though it's I don't think it's longer than
5: than the Iliad of the Odyssey. No, certainly none books. It's half the length of them each. But yes, (laughs) lines, it's a little bit more complicated. But yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's messy. So well, that's just because he's so rich. And there's so much to say about that story, Liv. You're making my argument for me. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Perfect. That's what it is. So before we
4: get too far in, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and and why we're talking to you specifically? (laughs)
5: Hi. Uh, well, my name is Avon McMaster, and I teach uh, Roman stuff, uh, Latin poetry and other classics at uh, the University, Thortolo University at Laurentian, which is in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. Um, and my sort of main f- focus, at least early on, was Roman poetry and particularly late Republican, early Augustine. So this is that period. So I did lots of stuff on Virgil and all of his contemporaries and early uh, people around him. And um, we're mostly talking because I <laughs> moaned on Twitter that if only I had you in my class, I could make you love the Aeneid, which was quite the boast now that I think about it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know, if you weren't going to say that, I was going to make sure that, that, that it was brought up, that this all came from a yeah. Twitter response that was like, I could I could convince you. And I was like, OK, great. I'm going to get you to. And, and I,
5: the only reason I feel any, you know, ability to say that is because of the in my classes, I teach Roman epic and, and other Roman poetry classes. And I'd say 95% of my students come into the classes saying, I really don't like poetry. I'm taking this course because I need to or because I like you, but I know I'm not going to like the material because I hate poetry. And uh, I don't I don't turn everybody, but I turn most of them. <laughs> so, and I've specifically had people come in saying, I've read the Aeneid before. It's so boring. I can't believe it. Like, why would you think it's worth reading compared to Homer? And I'm not saying I've made it their favorite, but, you know, I've, I've usually managed to have them leave saying, all right, grudgingly, <laughs> I kind of really enjoyed it. It was really kind of a good poem. <laughs> so we'll see if I can do that.
4: <laughs> I can recognize that that my opinion is based on a bias in that I just love Greek more. Yeah. Um and and my love is for Greek mythology completely and mm-hmm. I also did not have the most engaging course on it in university. Mm-hmm. I in hindsight I can't totally tell why it might have straight up just been that I was not motivated in that one course. Mm-hmm. Um but I do I remember getting away with finishing the course and not actually fully reading the Aeneid and having the wrong translation compared to the professors, to boot.
5: Right. <laughs> and and still managing it, yeah.
4: It's still getting away with it, but that was also just uh, somebody doing a BA when they had no intention of going further in right. their academia. <laughs> in hindsight, I would love to pay far more attention <laughs> now that, like, 10 years on, I'm actually using it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was definitely part of that, and also just having done it so close after like covering homer but also specifically i'm i'm reading aloud very old sad translations of homer as as bonus episodes of the podcast and so i'm now like doing it sort of simultaneously which i think has both added to it and hurt
5: Mm -hmm. you're making direct comparisons really yeah
4: exactly in a way that i don't think i would have otherwise and also it's the propaganda i think that keeps getting me like the some of the really obvious notations of just how incredible
5: Rome is going to be and here's why from the future which I just love (laughs) yeah all right so here's here's my pitch I'm not going to first of all I'm not going to argue that it's better than Homer I'm also not going to argue it's worse but like that's not my my argument so I love Homer I love the Iliad I love the Odyssey I also love other Greek myths like Apollonius um, other epics so this is not going to be why why the Aeneid is, because I think that's how it's pitched too often. Like that it, mm. it becomes, are you a Homer person or are you a Virgil person? Like, do you like I don't the, think we
4: need to pick, yeah. And,
5: and I, I do not pick. And also, um, you know, I'm better at teaching the Aeneid than I am at teaching Homer, because though I love both, the things I love about Homer, I'm not very good at teaching. Like I can recognize them and see them, but other people do that better. Stuff I love about the Aeneid is really in my wheelhouse. So that's sort of- why I feel like I can talk about it. The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, there will be contrasts made between Homer and, and Virgil, but I'm not trying to say when they do things differently, that one of them does it better than the, like that one of those options is better. So what I'm going to be arguing is that the Aeneid is trying to doing something different and that it does it well. I know that you're most interested in Aeneas rather than the Aeneid specifically. So I'm going to keep kind of going, or, or it'll be hard for me not to talk about the poem Oh,
4: and I would love to do that too, but it, yeah, because of my show, I just tend to be, it's a bit more story-based.
5: Yeah, it's you're retelling, retelling the story. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah, but I would absolutely love to hear it from from the poetry side yeah. as well, as somebody who doesn't, unfortunately, speak Latin or ancient Greek.
5: Right, so that like. was the other thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to talk about, like, obviously, if I were going to argue for the Aeneid, one of the arguments that I would make would be on the language and the poetry uh, and Trust me, there's good arguments to be made there, but I'm not going to make those because that's, you know, those are only accessible to a tiny number of people. That's not what you're doing on your podcast um, in the same way that you're not, you know, we're not going to argue about the beauty of Homeric, you know, lines, right? Like, so, so I'm going to leave that aside uh, for the most part. And the thing about Aeneas is, I will say right up front, is that if you totally remove him from the Aeneid, like that is, take him out of the context of the Aeneid and just say, what is the story of Aeneas? It's not as fun a story. Like, right away, I said I wasn't going to compare, but I will compare. Like, compared to the Odyssey, if you took Odysseus out of the Odyssey, it's still a good story. It doesn't have to be in Homer. It's still a good story. I will argue, though, that if you took Achilles out of the Iliad and you just had the story of Achilles, it's a bad story and he's a dick. Yep, yeah, agree entirely. <laughs> and I think the obvious, you know, the obvious demonstration of that is, is the movie Troy, where you take him out of Homer And whatever you think of that movie, you like it or dislike it, Achilles within that movie is no, like, who cares about Achilles?
4: He's just eye candy. Yeah,
5: Yeah. but there's nothing, like, there's nothing about him. The story of Troy is fun outside of Homer. In that sense, um, the basic story of Aeneas escape, you know, doesn't get killed, travels around a bit, is kind of a not very nice to a woman, and then ends up fighting a battle and sort of founding a city, but not even the right city. (laughs) Right?
4: like that's the thing I've, I've had the most trouble with because I'm not. I don't want to get too far into like the nitty gritty of that when I'm talking about yeah. it. It's so much easier to talk about it as a story of the founding of Rome because that's sort of the intention. But ultimately, no, he doesn't found Rome.
5: He doesn't even found the city before Rome. He found like the city before the city before Rome. <laughs> yeah,
4: it's like the basic foundations of it. And there's also more mythology after. Yeah, yeah. been trying to explain that has been interesting. <laughs>
5: yeah. So you know, from that point of view, uh, I can't argue that the story. Aeneas is as good a myth and so I'm like conceding all those points to start off with (laughs) shall I say but what I think I'm what I'm going to argue is that Aeneas within the Aeneid and like really you do have to think of it in that in this presentation because though he existed before you know as a figure both in Homer and before Virgil we really only know him through Virgil like everything else we know about Aeneas is in fragments and it's just scholar only scholars care about like we know the story of Virgil that Virgil gives us, and that's the story that matters to us.
4: Yeah, beyond Virgil, basically, I know him as the guy whose mother carried him out of the war because yeah. he got injured, which I do yeah. kind of love as an anecdote in Homer, but it's not yeah. the and, great I mean, story. He, you know,
5: he's mentioned, though not by name, in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, and, you know, things like that. But So mm-hmm. he has a place in myth, in, in proper Greek myth, but uh, if we're going to care about him, the only reason we care about him is because of the Aeneid. So, my, so what I would say about the Aeneid, And you know, one of the reasons I love it, but also the reason it's so different. A lot of the reasons I love it are the reasons, are things that people say why they hate it. So, so I'm setting myself a bit of a task here. (laughs) So the first thing is, like all the memes say, uh, it's not original, right? It's taking the Iliad and taking the Odyssey and turning them into a new poem that does the Iliad and that does the Odyssey over again. My feeling about it is that what I love about the Iliad is how much it knows it's not original. It's not trying to be original. In fact, what Virgil's doing is using the wonderful fact that this amazing richness of mythology and literature exists that he doesn't have to create but can instead revel in and use and 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 expect his audience to know, they know he knows he and one of the things I love about Virgil that it again can be off-putting is how much he expects from his readers. He expects his readers to know You know, a lot of other texts, a lot of other stories, but also an amazing amount of mythology, the obvious stuff and the not obvious stuff, uh, a lot of history, a lot of current politics, all of these things, and to bring those things to the story. And so, you know, obviously that makes it harder to be accessible than the sort of obvious stories of Homer, where, not that they're only obvious, but where you can come in kind of to those stories as long as you know some basic things about the importance of honor, you can pretty much get going. You know, <laughs> It's a couple of important things you need to know to be able to get through the first three, three paragraphs of the Iliad and understand them. But once you've kind of got that stuff down, you can go and you'll, you'll get filled in on all the bits. Now, Homer's still working with an audience that he expects to know a huge amount of mythology and he ref- references stuff all the time, all the names that throw people off, you know, all these things. But... But the Aeneid is working in a literary world, a world where he expects people to have read and to be able to go off and consult and to go back to texts in a way that you know the oral tradition doesn't do. And what that means for me is that it's this immense, like every, every little piece, it's almost like it's fractal. Anything in the Aeneid you can look at and then you can go in another, zoom in another level and you'll find a whole other bunch of stuff. And then you can zoom in another level and be like, okay, yeah. Well, so on the whole, Half of the poem is the Odyssey. So the first half of the Aeneid is the Odyssey, right? It retraces the story of someone leaving Troy and going home, home to a place he's never been, but ancestrally, Italy is home. And then the second half of the Aeneid is the Iliad, battle over a woman by an invading force that results in, you know, uh, a new, in this case, a new foundation. Instead, but instead of the destruction of a city, the, the foundation of a city. All right. So on the structural level, there's one illusion. All right. Well, let's go down to another level and say, like, how do each of the books work and what are they referring back to? And then you can start to I'm not going to do this because that's a whole course. But, you know, (laughs) then you can go and you can say, okay, well, what is this what is this mirroring off of and what is that mirroring off? Then you go down to like scenes and you say, well, in this scene, there's an Achilles and a Paris and a Hector, but they're shifted into this new context. Oh, well, well, let's look just at this one little set of lines. And see how this ties, this, you know, connects to all these other ones, and, and also, you know, is also referring back to Catullus and is also referring back to Apollonius and is referring both to the Iliad and the Odyssey, two variants and also this other variant myth that isn't in Homer. Oh no, now let's just look at one line and look at how each you know word in this line is actually referring to something, you know. Okay, actually, let's write an entire article about one word. <laughs> you know, like so, you know, that's not accessible in the sense that it's not. You can't do that. You can't turn that into an easy story, right? You can't make that into a fun uh, retelling. But it means that if you kind of do it on one level and then you want to know more, there's always somewhere more to go. And that is something I adore about it. It's not easy. And again, it's not better or worse. And Homer probably has tons of this stuff, but can't have the intertextuality because we don't have any other texts. Yeah, we don't know it. Right. We, we don't know what he's done. We don't know the myths he's referring to and the other cultural knowledge he's in. So we can't, we can never go back past that other than, you know, looking a, a bit at Mesopotamian stuff and things like that. But But it's much, much harder. So that's the first thing. The Aeneid knows it's in this world and it can use all of that. And it can expect us to fill in those kinds of blanks or those background stories. And what that means is that it also has a lot of like things that don't come out easily on the first reading, like inside jokes or like there's the things like, I mean, the Aeneid's it's not a terribly funny poem. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to pretend it is, but it has these little tiny things like, I mean, the probably the most obvious sort of funny in our quotes uh, section is book eight where Virgil has Aeneas visit the site of of Rome he goes up the Tiber he's trying to get an ally to fight on his side with against the the, uh, Italians and he visits what King Evander who happens to live where Rome is going to be founded right and that's part of this whole uh, one of the things I like about the Aeneid this weird time travel thing where Virgil's Aeneid is looking forward to a future that is still the Roman current reader's past, right? Just like the prophecies, where the prophecies are about the future, but they're the past for the reader. I like considering it,
4: it as time travel versus mm-hmm. propaganda.
5: <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean I'll come back to the propaganda point. Don't don't worry, because I'm very aware of that part of it. But But yeah. I do
4: like that. I like that idea that it is because if you're not looking at it like propaganda, it is time travel. It is just like able to see everything.
5: Yeah. And and if you think about, if you think about being a Roman who's reading this, I mean, think about, I don't know, if you ever watch a movie, you, you and I both know that we're not used to seeing our own cities in movies as those cities. But if you get to see your city in a movie that even if it's not playing your own city, you're like, oh, I know that corner and I know that bit. And oh, yeah. Or, you know, that kind of rec- the fun of recognition inside of something else um, I think we we forget sometimes how much that would have been true for Virgil's original audience when they saw King Evander showing Aeneas around the site of Rome and hearing about all these places, and Virgil's like, and here's the you know, most prestigious part of Rome when there <laughs> were a bunch of cows on it,, yeah. and, you know, that's funny. It's not you know hilarious, but it's funny and um, and for an actual Roman who lives in that city, it would be like. That cool oh yeah, this city used to be like can you can you imagine what this the most populous city in the entire world, in their own brain, uh is the most important realm. Isn't it weird to think of it as being like an a, a wasteland with a couple of huts and some cows? You know? Yeah, that no, that's that's thing. completely true.
4: That's it's such a fun way of looking at it. All I can think about is that I'm currently obsessed with playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And I feel like there's little bits of that because right. I've been to Athens and I've been to Delphi. And then you're looking around, and you're like, yeah, oh, yeah.
5: look, at the, it's like a little ancient world of the places that I know. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, and, you know, other things, other parts of the Aeneid that are very boring to us, like um, the parade of the Latin allies, where there's this whole big long list. And of course, that's, yes, it's an epic trope. Yes, it's looking back to the list of ships that came to Troy, you know, catalog of ships in, in Homer. But in, just like the catalog of ships in Homer, it has a point. If you were a Roman who, who knew all those names, right, knew them as place names or as names of, of families who lived in Rome or names of heroes that turn up later in, in, in Roman history. Now that's like a meaningful list and it's entertaining to you in a way that it can't be to us. <laughs> like it just I, I could do some scholarship and look at it but I can't and be interested but I can't like just read it and be like oh yeah it cool. just doesn't feel the same that's way that's my neighbor yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I saw him
4: the other day so, yeah
5: yeah so you know so those sorts of things so that's my first pitch is that one of the things that people always say about the Aeneid which is that it's not original I mean it's not but it's it that I think Virgil would have looked at you real weird if you'd said to him well it's not very original is it He'd be no. like, no it's no who said it obviously. was obviously <laughs> what did you want What did you want me to find, like, make up a completely new story that just pretended all this amazing stuff out there wasn't there? Like, what? Yeah. why would I bother? You know, like, so that's, you know, there's a different perception of originality. But also, you know, he's using really good stuff. The fact that Homer is amazing is part of what makes Virgil amazing.
4: Yeah, I I, want to, I hope I have, I I wouldn't have ever had that be an argument against it. Because I love that, too. Like, I... Because I think having that fascination with all of the ancient works, you get that. It's like, well, no, it's It's clear he was trying to do this thing. And I think, yeah, Mm -hmm. because of the way I have to tell the story, my issue is with Aeneas as a character more so than Virgil. Though I do say, and maybe you'll get to this, there are some moments when Virgil seems to like to... To gloss over what seems like should be like a, a good chunk of the story and he'll especially in the parts that are try, like recreating the Odyssey and it's like well he just got there or mm-hmm. I think there's a moment where he's like well the sirens are over there but they avoid them and keep going <laughs>
5: I'm like yeah okay <laughs> yeah so so one of the things so that's really no absolutely I mean one of the things about like that is very much recognized in the Uh, It's in particular in the Odyssey and half of the Aeneid, but it happens in the other half too, is a very deliberate avoidance of everything that Homer talks about. Mm. So it is actually like you can you can go through and look through the pattern. And it's interesting to me anyway, that the same thing then happens if you go and look at Ovid's Metamorphoses, where he when he talks, tells very briefly the story of Troy he then avoids everything that Virgil talks about mm. in detail. So there's this sort of, um seems to be an effort to be like, no, you know, homework covered that. So I'm going to allude to it, but I'm not going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm not going to cover that ground. So yeah, he, so you get the scene with Polly, with the Cyclops where they don't see the Cyclops. They just see them off in the distance, right. but he picks up, you know, a man left over by Odysseus left behind. Um, or uh which of course isn't in the odyssey or yes, Scylla and Charybdis mentioned but not seen um and then these other places like the harpies where we get something that isn't in the odyssey but it's kind of uh, in that same fantastical world mm-hmm. but is not that scene and even in the fall of troy we get you know we get the fall of troy um, and that, you know, book two is probably the book that, book two and book four are the books that people like the most in the Aeneid. Book two, which is The Fall of Troy, is probably the one that most people would say, would ex- I would say, would say, I don't really like the Aeneid, but the, the Fall of Troy stuff's good. You know, like because that is the good story part. That's part of that original myth. And
4: it is part that you don't get in the Iliad. So I can see That's why exactly. exactly it. yeah, yeah, it's like, well, the yeah. Iliad ends and you're like, but wait, Troy hasn't fallen. And then it's yeah. like, what happened? So, yeah, when, in reading that in the Aeneid, you're like, OK, well, this is what happened.
5: Yeah. And so there he gets to um, to tell the story as a full story. And I would, you know, I would say that when he does turn his mind to telling a story, It's a pretty good story. The story as he tells it of Aeneas, you know, giving himself up for lost and going out and trying to fight to the death and taking, you know, disguising themselves as Trojans and attacking the, uh, uh, sorry, disguising themselves as Greeks and then attacking the the Greeks and things like that. You know, it's pretty good. Um, And then the final escape where he, oops, forgets his wife. Um, (laughs) I did love that. I was like, wait, he had a wife? (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I held my my father on my shoulders, my little boy by my hand, and my wife followed a few steps behind. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> really? And then somehow, no, to give him credit, he goes back and looks for her, you know, until her, her ghost. ghost comes and says, <laughs> no, no, dear, you go on. Find a nice new girl and settle down. It'll be great. Um. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean... I don't love about the Aeneid, its treatment of women, though it's really well done. It's just infuriating. Yeah,
4: agree entirely. It's beautifully done and awful.
5: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So to focus then on um, Aeneas, specifically as a character, um, again, I would say the thing that is probably said about him the most, and that I can't disagree with, I also think is actually hear me out, his great strength, (laughs) which is that he's very boring and has no character, right? I mean, that's what people always say about Aeneas. And I think it's in many ways true in the sense that, so what Aeneas is, is, I would argue, you know, obviously he's sort of set up to be the proto-Roman, the the person who's going to show Romans, and this becomes very explicit in book six, he's going to be the person who's going to show Romans what Romanness is. You know, what what is Romanitas? What is it is? Is it to be Roman, which is a really important question at the period that Virgil is writing, because, you know, I don't know how much of the historical context you've given and I don't want to go into too much detail. But, you know, this is obviously at the end of a bunch of civil wars. Augustus has been ruling for a while. Uh, Things have been better, like a lot better. And it's always important to remember with the propaganda stuff. We can think about Augustus in a lot of ways. But Virgil lived through a bunch of civil wars and not civil wars was a lot better than civil wars. So, you know, whatever else was happening, there was a lot of stuff that was good. But also, Rome had expanded so hugely in, well, over the last 300 years, but especially in the last 100 years, 50 years, you know, Julius Caesar to Augustus, huge expansion trying to figure out what that meant for Rome, how Rome was going to be governed. Now it's being governed by a single person. How does that work? What is what is the imperial project? Do we want to expand? Do we not? How do? What does we mean? Who's getting citizenship? Who's a citizen? You know, are you Roman if you live in the city of Rome? Are you Roman if you live in Italy? Are you Roman if you live in the Roman Empire? Are you only a Roman if you're a citizen? What? Who gets citizenship? Now you can fight in the army and then you get citizenship after 30 years. Like all the senators were killed in the civil war. So all the noble families don't really have people in them anymore. Like there's all these questions about like really important questions about what it means to be a Roman and what Romanness even is. And whatever you think of the answers Virgil gives, the fact that he's trying to give answers is a product of when he's writing. Like he cares like everybody else cares at the time about what the answers to those questions are. And so Aeneas at first glance doesn't seem like a very good answer because he doesn't seem like, who is he, right? How do you put a pin in him? Does he have emotions? Does he like, <laughs> Does he care about anything? Is there a person there? Does he care about anything? Is he just somebody who cries a lot? Like what is, except when he doesn't cry because he's too manly. Like what is, what is Aeneas? And what I would say though, is what Aeneas is, is a series of other people <laughs> Uh, as if he's almost putting on, Virgil is having him put on the clothes of the, all the other heroes, of all the various models of heroes, and saying essentially, which one works? who is What is it to be a good Roman? Who is a Roman? Uh, and not just who's a good Roman, who's a good Roman leader? Because of course, if Aeneas is anybody, he's Augustus. Maybe. Sort of. Kind of. <laughs> right? Like, or Augustus is Aeneas, or... He's making you know, an Augustus this, look good. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's connecting Augustus and Aeneas. But what that means is, so Achilles, oh, sorry, Aeneas' sort of emptiness as a character allows him to be, you know, Achilles can never be anyone but Achilles because he's so intensely Achilles. And Odysseus can only be Odysseus. He's So no matter how many disguises he puts on, <laughs> all of those disguises are just like intensely Odysseus. But Aeneas doesn't really have enough of himself. So what he is instead is a whole bunch of other characters from myth and from stories, all of whom sort of can be reduced, maybe not to only one defining characteristic, but like a couple of sort of, of, of a model, let's say a model of manliness, a model of heroic activity, a model of leadership, a model of kingship, a model of Romanness, And how he does and like what succeeds and what fails, what he continues to do and what he doesn't continue to do, Kind of altogether, I don't know that they fully answer the question of Romanists, but they they gesture towards that answer. So to make what I'm saying like a little more concrete, very basic things. Um, when he goes out and fights as Troy is falling, right, in that book too, he's Hector. I mean, Hector comes to him as a ghost and says, go out and fight. And then he wakes up and apparently forgets it entirely because... If Aeneas is anything, it's forgetful um, <laughs> of his own dreams. Not so good at that. Um, but he goes out and he fights, right? He's the doomed heroic defender of the city. And he fights well and bravely and rallies the tree. Like he acts like Hector acts, as Hector goes out knowing that the city is going to fall and he's going to die when he goes out to fight Achilles, right? So he takes on Hector's role. Or when he comes to, um, when he arrives shipwrecked on the shores of Dido's Carthage, He's Odysseus to first Venus's and then Dido's Nasica, right? Uh, or the Phaeacian palace, right? Um, welcomed by a young woman with prospects of marriage on the table, if never actually explicitly said or, or are said, um, welcomed in. So he's Odysseus. And he's been Odysseus, of course, in his journeys. Um, but also, and book four really is where this, this example, you can. There's a lot of richness to who they all are. He's also Jason to Dido's Medea, hmm. right, leaving okay. her behind, uh, but also welcomed and and gathered in. So Dido has a couple of has a bunch of lines where she echoes. She says at one point to her sister Anna, "I wish he had never come to my shores. I wish his ship had never arrived on my shores." The opening of Euripides' play, The Medea, starts with the nurse saying, oh, would that the Argonaut had never arrived in Colchis because my mistress Medea has been so badly treated ever since. Right. So there's this direct echo of the Medea. So Dido is Medea. And then, of course, when Dido climbs on the pyre and acts as a witch. Yeah, she's very. She's Medea in in all of her witchly glory. So that makes him Jason and Jason the forgetful uh he's also Theseus I the was the just gonna say Yeah, I was like I we need to make yeah. sure we talk about
4: how he's also very Theseus <laughs> he's very Ariadne. much Theseus.
5: yeah yeah and she, and she, again there's specific references to Catullus's poem long poem about Ariadne so there's a poem by Catullus 64 that's this little tiny mini epic all about well the wedding of Peleus and Thetis actually but there's this inset narrative about Ariadne being abandoned by Theseus. And uh, there's a, a number of verbal allusions where Dido kind of echoes Ariadne's lines there. Hmm. And so, again, um, he's definitely cast as, as Theseus. Well, you know, Theseus and Jason may not be our favorite heroes, but they are heroes from Greek men. And they were favorites that is back
4: a, then. They were not yeah, considered and, to, as hateful, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, they
5: were, definitely, they were definitely possible models of heroism, let's put it that way. Um, and leaders, you know, Theseus was a king. He was a king of Athens that was the sort of the democratic king of Athens in in the weird um, retrojected way of of, of Athenian democracy. Also, very much Aeneas is Antony and Dido is Cleopatra Hmm. in that that because Dido is the eastern queen. I mean, I know she's in Carthage now, but she's Phoenician. She's the eastern queen who threatens to derail this good manly Roman man. He's not Roman yet, but proto-Roman. Um, from his proper duty by a marriage that isn't a marriage, where he's, uh, you know, all the fears and the propaganda that uh, Octavian and and, and Augustus uh, used against Antony in his, um, so in the the big civil war between Octavian and Antony after the death of Caesar, um, I just... Collapsed a lot of years there, but we won't. Worry I got about it. That. <laughs>
4: there's a but lot in, of civil in, wars in, to my in, listeners. Yeah, a
5: lot. Exactly. They're long, exactly. extensive, <laughs> and very bad. Yeah. But Octavian uses, you know, so Antony goes off to the court and ends up living with Cleopatra and marrying her and having children. And he uses Octavian uses this as like big propaganda that he says that Antony was going to move the capital of Rome to um, Alexandria. For instance, I mean, there's no evidence that that was ever planned. But he uses that to scare the Roman populace into believing that, like, Antony is, is he's turned Eastern, he's turned into an effeminate Easterner, ruled by this monstrous woman who also has power. How horrendous is that? How, you know, like, how can any man endure Ugh. that horror? Uh, yeah, anyway, I have lots to say about Cleopatra, <laughs> but leaving that aside. So Dido, who was there in myth, Virgil didn't make her up exactly, but he kind of. Maybe he did, but he he you know he had someone to work with there, but he makes her into this person. I don't. I really do not think any first century Roman could possibly avoid seeing her as Cleopatra, hmm. you know, leading astray, because she's she she almost. If he settled down there, there'd be no Rome. There'd only be Carthage, and Carthage is the great opponent. Carthage is the enemy. Carthage was Hannibal's city. Carthage almost destroyed Rome, and here. At Juno's urging, Dino almost destroys Rome before Rome's even Rome. And like Cleopatra ensnaring Antony with her wiles, she has ensnared Aeneas. But, you know, Antony, for all of Augustus's propaganda, was a great general, uh, second in command to the very popular, second in command to Julius Caesar. Like he was a possible modern of Roman model of Roman maleness and Roman heroic greatness, you know, until he lost the civil war up until the very moment that he lost he could have been the one that everybody thought was the way you should be a roman you know so this is a potential model for how to be roman but virgil presents it as like the wrong path and you know jupiter's like by the way wrong (laughs) no wrong in case you didn't know wrong i'm gonna (laughs) make you see how wrong it is and then he sends hermes uh, mercury right so like there's no um it's it's presented as this option and then it's taken away. But by allowing Aeneas, because he's so sort of blank, to be all these people, to be Jason, to be, and there's all sorts of intertextuality I won't bore you with, that like really highlights these various connections. By allowing him to be all these, it 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 explores those possible models for Romanus. And then says, no, you know, we can't do that, but But look how attractive it is and look how many, you know, we understand these are ways we might want to be, but you have to learn to not do that, you know, be the unfeeling man and move on. Mm. Um, And so and then he gets to, you know, he gets to Italy and you can see him in the various battles, which in many ways, the second half of the Aeneid, most people hate because it's just battles. I will just say so it's most of the Iliad so you know.
4: Yeah, I, I think, let us not forget yeah, that. I don't think there's
5: much of an argument there comparing yeah. it. <laughs> but um but what you do have there is all these places where like so first of all he's Paris, right? He comes to he's Paris landing on the shores of a cit- of a city the home of the Latins, uh, king Latinus's city and being, you know, taking away the princess who was betrothed to Turnus. Now, he didn't steal her because he's far too good a, you know, good a Roman to do that. But Turnus specifically says that mm-hmm. he says, "Oh, he is another Alexander, another another Paris, come to steal, you know, with his long flowing locks and his curly, you know, oily hair with his fancy Trojan bonnets." Like um, people all through the po- poem keep calling him Easterner, like an effeminate Easterner, because he's a Trojan. It's one of the things he has to lose over this mm. whole thing. He has to become proper Roman, manly. And he has to join with the Italians who are good and rugged and rustic because only then can you have the good proper Romans who are not, you know, they lose their Trojan taint. As it were. <laughs> <laughs> so you get him, he's Paris and he's stealing away Helen, Lavinia. Or then when he fights and um, he's defending the walls of the encampment against Turnus, now Turnus is Achilles and he is Hector again. Or when he goes raging across the battlefield after the death of Pallas of the young the young boy that he was sort of in loco parentis for, and he gets so upset about who is obviously Patroclus to his Achilles, now he's Achilles raging across the battlefield in a fury where he stops giving quarter and refuses to you know ransom anybody anymore and and now he's he's doing all of that so he he's all of these different people. And each of those has, you know, he's Odysseus, he's he's Achilles. Each of them has traits that are valuable to the Romans, but also things that are not. So Achilles is definitely a model of manhood, but just like he wasn't such a great model to later, you know, Athenian hoplites, he's not a great model for Roman military culture because he's too he has too much anger, he's too uncontrolled, he's too selfish, frankly. Uh, to be a Roman general, say. um, There's a whole bunch of Roman myth and legend later about like people who rush out in front of the lines and go to single combat and win and then are like executed by their father because they dissipate odors. Hmm. You know, that kind of thing, right? Like this is not allowed. You have to fight in formation. You have to be disciplined. You have to do these things. So all of these people that Aeneas is in his various um, incarnations... All of them and then you know and un- the undercurrent of all of that is which of these is Augustus? If Aeneas is is Augustus, then is Augustus Achilles? Well, Augustus Octavian did some Achilles-like things. He there was some stuff we don't like to talk about that he did during the Civil Wars, <laughs> some slaughtering of some cities, possibly human sacrifice. We're not quite sure. Um you know, there's like these these pieces of historical propaganda. We only see the the little bits of it because Augustus won, so we don't mm-hmm. hear most of the propaganda against him. But we know that there was stuff around that. Um, you know, the, the war between the Latins and Aeneas is very much a civil war. And it it is because, even, even though it's not, it's a civil war because to the Roman watching it, this is their ancestors. Yeah. So it's like watching, you know, your in-laws fight, even though it's you know, again, it's this time travel thing. And, you know, that echoes those the, the century of civil wars that started with the social war, the weirdest name of a war in Roman history. But it's about the allies fighting. So it's the Italian allies fighting the Romans. And that like that left scars on the Roman psyche. They It was really bad. Civil wars are bad. You don't get over them just when they end. And so by kind of playing that out again in the Aeneid, I think that's another element of emotionalism to that poem that we don't always feel like It's not just a battle between two random people. Like, the Greeks and the Trojans don't matter that much to people. In the Greek, you know, Mm -hmm. the Trojans, at least, do not matter that much to a Greek audience, though they're portrayed as good. And, like, it's not an us and them, exactly. but, But emotionally, they don't mean much. But to a Roman or an Italian watching this, like, these cities and these peoples are their ancestors. And it is going to have an emotional... Like, it's a replaying of... A mythological replaying of actual scarring civil war that has gone on, uh, and so you know, Aeneas is Aeneas going to be able to bring them together? Like the 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 pain of Latinus and Aeneas wanting to you know make a nice happy agreement right at the beginning, everything's going to be peaceful, and then having that just torn apart by Hera, of a Juno, of course, because it's always Juno. What's well.
4: well, always a woman? <laughs>
5: Yeah, and when Juno, and then Electo, and you know all of, and Lavinia, yeah. and and Amata, and all the women, all the women doing all the bad, <laughs> and even uh, Sylvia with her little fawn, her little deer that gets hit by an arrow and starts the war. It's I hadn't even gone women. that
4: far. Yeah. Come oh on. yeah,
5: it's, yeah, yeah.
4: It really you know, is. It's just every
5: them. person that causes trouble mm-hmm. is a woman, mm-hmm. is a female. Good uh, yeah, Whether yeah, it's all good. But and you know e- even though Turnus is the big instigator, it's because he's been egged on by amada and by the fury but that like tragedy of people who should be one going out and killing each other instead uh is actually like a really emotional tragedy it's just hard to see that from our distance because these people are just stories to us that we don't have any kind of emotional tie to it um and the fact that we still might find it interesting is pretty impressive given virgil couldn't really imagine us reading it, you know, in that sense.
4: Yeah, it was very much for 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 the Roman people and not not for us trying to figure it out now. Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah.
0: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true she pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives
5: So that's my argument for sort of Aeneas. Yes, it's true. He's hard to latch onto as someone to care about consistently as like a developing character. Because the only character development he he does develop, but the only character development he really has is trying on and discarding a whole bunch of heroic models. Really. And that doesn't feel like a character arc that we're interested in, you know? <laughs> like,
4: yeah, it's non-standard. We can't see a consistent yeah.
5: person there. We can't see a, a person who's, who's, who we can identify with or, yeah. or care about as, an, as a consistent individual. But I think I find that sort of malleability, the fact that he, you know, because now this is a bit of projection because I don't think Aeneas, Virgil really gives us this, but I can almost see a sort of desperation in him to find out who he should be. Now, I, it's not that psychological a poem in that sense. Like, I don't want to argue that it's like him finding his own self and coming to terms with who he is. Because I don't think he quite gets there. But, but like, there's a little bit of that. Like, his despair at the beginning. Uh, How the hell am I going to do this? (laughs) How does this work? Who who do I have to be to make this work? I think that's very true with
4: the the desperation. Just because it's even if it's just a desperation to get rome to where it is like like that time travel Mm -hmm. desperation of this man i mean he doesn't know but we know that he has to get rome to be what it is now this like the greatest place Mm -hmm. in the whole world as as stated in the poem a few times um and so yeah i mean there would be a level of desperation with that kind of pressure even if you don't necessarily know that you that there is that pressure on you but the reader knows
5: yeah and he has told it even though he keeps forgetting it he has told it a number of times yeah he is told yeah yeah, Very yeah. Explicitly. And then he forgets again <laughs> we have to get to this point man Julius Caesar is a god <laughs> uh, yeah there's a whole question about that but anyway um so like and the other thing about that sort of desperation or that question is again if he is Augustus or if he's you know there's also that question of who is Augustus Right. Like that's going to be a really present question. Later on, there's this medieval genre of the mirror of princes. Um, I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's it's later. But there's the Machiavelli kind of does this, too, um, where it's a, you get these people writing wisdom literature where they're like, you know, writing for the king or for the prince telling them what kind of ruler they should be like what are, and you get it even in seneca early like when he's writing for nero he writes these things about like the qualities of a good ruler temperance mildness virtue you know this sort of thing nero listens right oh yeah 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 and and everything goes great um yeah she just don't read best. ahead okay yeah <laughs> don't want no <Great>. spoil <laughs> no i'll live thinking nero is one of the best emperors yeah, yeah. takes it all to heart it's all great yeah um, but, you know, that mo- that uh, uh, Virgil's not doing that explicitly, but you could kind of see that underlying it. He's saying to Augustus, too, here's a whole bunch of models for what it is to be a hero and a leader. And look, they don't work. Like these Greek models, um, they have bits to them that are interesting and useful. But, you know, we're Roman. We're something new. We're an amalgam of all of these different kinds of ideas and something better, obviously, he's saying. Always, always. But Augustus, like, don't go down that path. You chose not to be Antony. That's great. But don't be Achilles. Don't be all these other people. And so, and you know, and that doesn't necessarily contrast with him saying Augustus is great. That's not a, in conflict. But you know, Augustus is still in power. And you know, then there's Augustus's family to come. And like, there's, it's an open question what these rulers are going to be like. What is it like going to be like to be ruled by? an emperor even if that's not a term being used yet mm-hmm. and uh and so you know one of the ways to try to influence people is whether it was direct and explicit and intentional or just to sort of underlying anxiety that comes out from virgil is to give sort of the the do's and the don'ts but in a way that doesn't make people feel lectured to <laughs> right mm-hmm. you know that is not that is not just an now augustus you make sure you you know <laughs> like you can't do that to a supreme ruler it just doesn't it doesn't work, um, but you can give him someone to model himself on, right? You do that. It's that nudging by flattering. You're just like Aeneas and look who Aeneas ends up being or or what he should be or what the best mm-hmm. parts of Aeneas are. What does Jupiter want to see in Aeneas, you know? Well, and
4: there's such a key point of you're also a descendant of Aeneas. Yeah. is something that is then drilled in so much. So it's yeah. not even, yeah, it's such, it's a blood relation that the, that the work is also trying
5: to really drill in there. Yeah, Absolutely. So let me, I know that I've talked a lot. but No, I love this. This is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) But one other, so the the thing we've been dancing around then is that question of propaganda. And again, Mm -hmm. that is absolutely like a knock against the Aeneid that's often used. Um, And we could argue about propaganda and Homer till the cows come home, but we won't, you know, what does it mean to be political poems, blah, blah, blah. I won't worry about that. I love Homer and I don't mind. I think all I think all poetry is propaganda, frankly, and all literature is propaganda. So I'm quite comfortable with that.
4: But... The propaganda alone is interesting. So, I yes. mean, obviously, I'm, I'm thrilled that we're talking about it in general. But I want to say, like, I, I find it hard when I'm telling the story, yeah. the propaganda, but when I'm just reading it, it's fascinating because yeah. some of it is so obvious and so interesting the way that it's put into the work to make mm-hmm. it, like... I mean, all drilled down to Augustus and Julius Caesar are gods.
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, they they become these weird insets that make the narrative hard. If you're just going to tell the narrative because it's like, and now do I just like, now we're just, sidebar, Rome is great. Yeah. <laughs> to the normal main story. Like what, what do I do with this? So I totally get that. One of the things that I love about the Aeneid and, uh, here I'm going to be very nerdy and scholarly for a moment, um, as opposed to what I've done so far, um, <laughs> I'm never that... nerdy.
4: I don't know I don't know what show you think you're on, but <laughs> we don't do that here.
5: No. Um, uh, is that the question of is it a propaganda piece is like the central question of the Aeneid. Um in the same way is Homer a real person or not is the central question of Homer. Um did Virgil like Augustus or not is the central question mm-hmm. of the Aeneid scholarship. Now, only in the last 50 to 100 years, is that been a question? Which is interesting. So like 2,000 years of people reading the Virgil, as far as we know, in terms of anything that anyone wrote about it, they were like, this is definitely a praise of Augustus. Mm -hmm. And over the last 60, I don't know, I I lose track of time. We're still in 1990, right? Um, Definitely. (laughs) definitely. uh, But you know, last 60 to 70 years or whatever. uh, Basically, since the Second World War, there has been uh, a real counter-argument to that, where scholars have been saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, and the, you know, the extreme version of it, or the sort of most highly developed version of it is, no, no, the Aeneid is a 100% a critique of Augustus. What it is, is it's not, maybe a satire isn't quite the right word, but it's, it's like, so there's what are called the pessimistic and the optimistic view of the Aeneid. Now, those are a bit caricatures, right? Like, really, no, no one argues for one or the other completely, maybe, but And that pessimistic reading, um, and what I love about it, just frankly, is that you can get four Virgil scholars in a room, and they'll all have a different opinion on where they fall on that kind of scale, and they'll all be able to argue for it really convincingly. And I mean, I just, like, my little ambiguity-loving, literature-loving heart adores the fact that you can look at the Aeneid and be a good scholar and genuinely come to a very, like, an opposing position. So I have my own sort of views on it, but I can't really deny the strength of the other arguments, right? Um, Because there's just so much in there. So very briefly, the argument that he's pro-Augustus is he says he's pro-Augustus. <laughs> that one's pretty straightforward. Yeah, right? That one's pretty obvious. Yeah, where he's like, <laughs> Jupiter says Rome is the best in the entire thing, world and will be best forever. Yeah,
4: look how great it is now that Augustus is ruling. You look
5: how great it is. And isn't it, And Augustus is a god. And this is the whole point of everything is that Augustus will come and he will become a god too. And Anchises is like, look at Rome. Look at its history. It's the best. So that's that side. And <laughs> it's very obvious. The other interpretation hinges on two really basic points and they really come from that scene in the underworld where anchises and aeneas meet and anchises ends not quite ends but almost ends with the section where he says he sort of turns to camera and he addresses the reader and he's like you roman here's what you're going to be and i'm actually going to find my Fagel's translation because i want to get the words that he uses right and Cassius has been looking at all of these like heroes of the Roman literary as a Roman legendary past for the reader future for Aeneas uh, in the underworld waiting to be reborn. And he's talked about Caesar. He's been like Caesar and Pompey, would you kind of stop fighting? It would be great if you didn't have a civil war. You know, it's, it's all fun, fun stuff. But he's looking at the, these people and I guess he's addressing, I don't know how we're supposed to see it, but basically he addresses the reader. Cause he says, Others, I have no doubt, will forge the bronze to breathe with suppler lines, draw from the block of marble features quick with life, plead their cases better, chart with their rods the stars that climb the sky and foretell the times they rise. But you, Roman, remember, rule with all your power the peoples of the earth. These will be your arts to put your stamps on the works and ways of peace to spare the defeated, break the proud in war. So I always show this in my... Roman civ class. And I'm like, if you want to know <laughs> what the ideal Roman is, Virgil would like you to know this is what the mm-hmm. ideal Roman is, right? Not an artist, not an astronomer or astrologer, not a magician, not even an orator, even though the Romans do pride themselves on law courts and speeches. But no, not, none of those are their national character. None of those are their national virtue. Their national virtue and their manifest destiny their thing they should bring to the world is to put your stamps on the works and ways of peace spare the defeated and break the proud in war and i don't know which translation you have i have
4: the sarah rudin right here i have a few of them but she says but romans don't forget that world dominion is your great craft Peace and then peaceful customs, sparing the conquered, striking down the haughty. So
5: there's a lot of different ways to phrase it, but like it comes, you mm-hmm. know, that's that's real explicit. And I mean, I do, I just, yeah, I kind of love that moment just because it comes, you know, if I'm, if I'm arguing that the whole poem is about what it is to be a Roman, this is at least an answer. And it's, it's literally in the middle of the poem, like by number of lines on either side, it is pretty much almost exactly in the middle of the poem. Wow. So... You know, Virgil's, this is this is a written work, not a, you can really tell the difference between like a, yeah, an oral not poem oral. and a, a written work when he does that kind of numerical stuff.
4: I found it pretty throughout too, just the way the way it's told, you can tell it's just meant meant to be read and not,
5: not yeah. read aloud. Absolutely. And you get like things where he was, we know he did because we know a little bit about his process, but you know, he was going back and editing and changing and, mm. and adapting and, and, and cross-referencing in a way that you, you can't do unless it's literary. So, so that's his, that's what he says. Well, there's nothing in there that's negative, right? That sounds like what Augustus thinks he's doing anyway. And so that's fine. But the negative part comes to two passages. Everyone always points to one is when he leaves the underworld. What gate does Aeneas go out of?
4: Oh, so th- we
5: are told there yeah. are two gates at the end. So this is a neat little piece of like underworld. You know, our understanding of the underworld comes to a large extent from Virgil. That's where Dante yeah. is drawing from a lot. Oh, yeah, We don't get a lot of stories about the underworld in Greek myth. They don't tell us what it looks like most of the time.
4: Well, and they have like bajillion different versions of the little details they do tell us. Yeah. So it's hard yeah. to track. And they don't really yeah.
5: have a, a, a geography. Yeah. But right at the end of book six, Vir- Aeneas has to go out. And he doesn't go the way he did. He doesn't go back over the the... River with Charon. He goes out, there are two gates that lead out of the underworld. There are twin gates of sleep. One, they say, is called the Gate of Horn, and it offers easy passage to all true shades. Shades here meaning, you know, ghosts, but also dreams. Hmm. The other glistens with ivory, radiant, flawless, but through it the dead send false dreams up toward the sky. So we have two gates, gates of horn and a gate of ivory. One has true dreams, the other has false dreams. And here Anchises, his vision told in full, escorts his son and Sybil both and shows them out now through the ivory gate. That would be the one that has false dreams. So Aeneas leaves and Aeneas goes to his ships and gets on the ships and they leave and they go to Italy proper. So I'm not going to tell you how many articles and books have been written about that line. But let us just say it's a lot. And, you know, you can say we're reading way too much into it, et cetera, et cetera. But like with Virgil, my my mantra with Virgil is there's no such thing as reading too much into it. But that's also the fun. This man, this man meant every word he put down. Uh. He was not like, so why does he leave through the gates of Horn? Well, one of the really short answers would be, as a gate of ivory, sorry. One of the short answers is he seems to forget everything he's told. Yeah. Right. He knows, like, he never refers to it again. He doesn't remember it apparently Anchises, we're told, tells him everything he needs to know about how to fight the wars in Italy that are coming up. And when it, he gets to Italy, he's like, oh my God, wars? I didn't know I was going to have to fight it. I mean, like, so maybe he goes out and he just forgets everything. Um, and that's why it's the Gate of Ivory. But also, is that, so the, the pessimistic reading is to say that Virgil is saying, this is all a load of crap. This is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, I've given you the story, the story of Rome, all of its history, all of its greatness. I've told you that Romans are the best and here's what Romans should be. But listen, if you're paying close attention to my poem, you will see that's just one of those false dreams yeah. that the word God send into the world. And that is the idol we have, as it were, but it's not the reality. That's not what the Roman Empire is.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Now that, you know, that takes a certain amount. You have to believe that he wants to undercut himself. You may not buy that, right? Like, that's that's why I say it's it's a telling point, but it's also not necessarily, uh, you know, one that you can't argue against. Yeah. You can certainly say that that's, that doesn't make sense, that he'd have a whole poem that he's basically saying every so often going like, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, other pessimistic readings would also point to, for instance, his treatment of Dido, Aeneas' treatment of Dido as being unforgivable. And therefore, you know, even though we're given reasons why he has to, and he's told by Jupiter he has to do that, in the end, that's just like an unacceptable action that undercuts him as a leader, for instance. And again, you can argue both sides of that. Like, I can see both sides of that argument. Mm -hmm. The other major passage, most important one, is the ending. When my dad first read the Aeneid, he phoned me up to say... Um, I, read the, I was just reading the Aeneid because you're in university and doing classics and I thought I'd read it and this is interesting. But I think my book is missing the last few pages. I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, yeah, because it just, Aeneas kills Ternus and then it, it ends? Like, there's got to be more to it. That can't be the end. I was like, oh no, that's the end. Let me tell you what scholars, I had just been doing a class. I'm like, let me tell you what scholars say about why it just yeah. ends like that. But like, it is such an abrupt ending. And so it, it, it's always felt, you know, there is one train of thought that says Virgil was going to change it, but he died too early. Um, I don't believe that for a number of reasons, but because mm. he did die with it unfinished. But I think it was just not edited fully. I don't think we have reason to believe that it was going to be longer. Like the book is the same length as all the other books. Like how much longer was it going to be? Yeah. And I think it's a good ending. But. <laughs> Sounds like the Iliad. Yeah. I mean, the Iliad, the Iliad has a little bit more of closure because it does have the, the funeral. Right. Yeah. But yeah, the, the Iliad by no means ends where the story ends. And I think that that's mm-hmm. important. And when you think about it, like what what would the rest of the poem be if you kept going? Yeah. And then they like st- had peace and then yeah. they buried everybody and then they had a wedding. And then Aeneas went like, where do you stop it? And then Aeneas went off and founded a city and then Aeneas died. And then, it's you know, like, yeah, it's yeah. all it's all boring from then on. But the thing about that ending is. So you know it's it, it's very abrupt and it also feels really meaningful therefore like it doesn't feel like it's just tidying up like this mm-hmm. is the climax of the poem right He stands Aeneas stands over Turnus his great enemy and as I've said they've traded they've taken turns being Achilles they've taken turns being mm-hmm. Hector, Hector they've yeah. taken turns being Paris they've been all of those great Iliadic heroes Aeneas has been a, a hugely powerful fighter, so is Turnus, but finally Turnus has been kind of betrayed by the gods, basically, and, and has lost. And so Turnus is lying there, and he reaches out his right hand and begged as suppliant, "I deserve it all. No mercy, please." Turnus pleaded, "Seize your moment now, or..." If some care for a parent's grief can touch you still, I pray you, you had such a father in old Anchises, pity Downus, his father, in his old age, and send me back to my own people. Or, if you would prefer, send them my dead body, stripped of life. Here, the victor and vanquished, I stretch my hands to you, so the men of Latium have seen me in defeat. Lavinia is your bride. Go no further down the road of hatred." And Aeneas, ferocious in armor, stood there, still shifting his gaze, and held his sword arm back, holding himself back, too, as Turnus's words began to sway him more and more, when all at once he caught sight of the fateful sword belt of Pallas. Um, skip this bit, but basically he sees the, the armor that Turnus had taken from this young man that Aeneas was protecting, so the Patroclus figure, basically. So he's reminded of Turnus's killing of this young man. Aeneas, soon as his eyes drank in that plunder, keepsake of his own savage grief, flaring up in fury, terrible in his rage, he cries, decked in the spoils you stripped from one I loved, escape my clutches? Never! Pallas strikes this blow, Pallas sacrifices you now, makes you pay the price with your own guilty blood. In the same breath, blazing with wrath, he plants his iron sword, hilt deep in his enemy's heart. Turnus' limbs went limp in the chill of death. His life-breath fled with a groan of outrage down to the shades below. Now, I would like you to remember the words of Anchises in the underworld. What did Anchises tell the Roman, ideal Roman to do?
4: Not that. (laughs) He said, spare the
5: defeated and bring down the proud, right? Right. Like, that's literally what he said.
4: yeah, Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that Aeneas basically just becomes everyone's worst nightmare. Like, just the worst imaginable He's
5: yeah. he's he's the embodiment of fury. I mean, the word wrath, wrath of fury yeah. is used about six times of him in the last five lines, and so the big question is here. So, some people say he says, "Palace is sacrificing you." So, people so the, the optimistic reading of this is he is moved by the pietas, the 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 duty he feels as father to Palace, like the father and son duty, to uh, avenge Palace's death, and that, that is a a. Proper thing to do. And there is definitely some of that there. The negative or pessimistic reading of it is to say, Anchises bloody well told you to spare the defeated. And Turnus literally said, I I'm defeated. defeated. <laughs> Admit my defeat visibly to everyone. Please spare me. And Aeneas was going to, but then he was moved by rage. And if you know much about Roman understanding the virtue and philosophy and stuff um you know stoicism was really f- famously important to the romans and stuff uh self control is like their prime virtue along with pietas and and other things like that but like self control is really really important so he's loses control becomes enraged and kills somebody who has defe- been defeated so the pessimistic reading of that is to say it undercuts everything else in the poem <laughs> like Every other, Aeneas, in the end, fails the Mm -hmm. test, is bad. If Augustus is Aeneas, then Augustus too has failed the test, will fail the test. The whole Roman project is a bunch of lies, as shown to us by the Gate of Ivory. Because if the gate, if the whole point of Rome is to spare the defeated, we started Rome on the opposite of that. So the Roman project, the imperial world... The, the the peace and laws we are bringing to the world is a lie it's a sham we're just a bunch of raging savages that's you know that's that's a drastic reading of it <laughs> it's convincing <laughs> it has i mean i i i'm such a wishy-washy person i'm always I think it's a bit of both. <laughs> That's almost my answer. You know, I, I don't see, I personally don't see a way of reading that ending in anything other than a negative way, but I don't actually see it as undercutting the whole project. Mm-hmm. I would rather say that what I think Virgil is doing and what I think the great power of the story of Aeneas is, is that he is saying, um, and it's the, the very beginning of the poem starts with such a great Struggle it was to found the city of Rome. And I think you can expand that to the whole thing, not just say he had to go through a bunch of hardships, but, and I'm going to sound like an imperialist apologist, and <laughs> trust me, I'm not, but I think this is what Virgil's saying is, you know, empire may on balance be a good thing, but it doesn't come without cost. And, mm. you know, Dido is a cost of empire, Creusa is a cost of empire. Um the, the the civil war is a cost of empire. Mm-hmm. Uh Turnus is, you know, these are all people and even Aeneas' Aeneas's own virtue is to some extent a cost of empire. Leadership is hard. You not only have to do things that you don't want to do, but you do have to do things that are bad. And they do maybe result, you know, there is maybe an ends justify the means, but but the ends are are, are you know, the ends are good maybe, but the means are are bad sometimes. And to me, that is a much more interesting story than either the whole imperial project is shit. You know, even if I do think it is, like, I think as a piece of literature, it's a more interesting piece. And as a myth, you know, if I would argue that myths in general ask questions mm-hmm. of us, they don't answer questions, the kind of myths that actually last and matter to us and are fun to retell and yeah. get re-envisioned. They don't like the story of Hercules doesn't answer a question for us. It asks a lot of questions because a lot of stories, but it doesn't tell us in the end how to be the best person, how to deal with every problem we have in life. Disney's me. <laughs> yeah, really. But that's why it's not a good myth. Yeah. It might be a good movie, but it's not a good myth. Yeah. Right? And I think that's true of, of Virgil too. He's asking a bunch of questions. And I don't think that if it's a pessimistic ending, that that has to mean the verge. I don't think that has to mean he doesn't like Augustus. Mm hmm. I think that he can think, you know, Augustus did a hell of a lot of good stuff for us and has made the world a better place, but not without costs to him and to us.
4: Yeah. It seems like he's also just making Augustus happy while also like putting in his own opinion, like the truth of it while keeping Augustus happy by also being like, well, he did great.
5: Yeah. And, and you know, so that like a, a big question, if you buy any of the pessimistic stuff is to what extent did he expect Augustus to understand that? Like, was mm-hmm. he writing for Augustus, but other readers as well? You know, how good a reader was Augustus? But you can suggest also maybe Augustus was actually a good reader and also knew that a puff piece was not going to last the test of time. Mm-hmm. A puff piece was not going to give him, you know, there were lots of poets out there probably writing like panegyrics but panegyrics we don't have those anymore not many of them because who who cares everybody sees through them but you know something that's got complexity to it is a better is a better piece of when it comes right down to it propaganda mm-hmm. than just something that only says nice things mm-hmm. and only gets all the good stuff across you know there's a lot of uh Let's just say that a, there's a lot of what ifs there, right? We, we end up having to sort of be psychologists and try to, at the end of the day, that's all just supposition. We can't say. Um, what kind of reader was Augustus? What did Virgil think? How did, they, yeah. how, how did they get along? Did Virgil even have to write this for Augustus or not? Like, what was their relationship? To what extent was he dependent? This is all historical stuff that in the end we can't know. But it's those questions and the reading of Virgil against himself in this way that has fascinated me about the poem for so long mm-hmm. and and while a lot of what i've just said at the very end there is not about the myth as a story exactly um and so I, you know i don't think i can fully rehabilitate it just as a story um i do think I, I hope that i have sort of shown why it repays thinking about and why like i get moved by the poem mm-hmm. at the end there when virgil kills Turnus, it I, I find it an extremely emotional moment mm-hmm. and not because I like Turnus or, or like not because I like either of them Turnus mm-hmm. t- is a twit and Aeneas is a blank but because I feel all the tugs of all that the, the pieces that have gone into this and because I see Achilles and Hector and because I see all of these other things there at the same time for all of those reasons, I find it extremely moving, mm-hmm. and that's a different reason than why I find it moving when Priam asks Patroclus uh, Hector's body back of Achilles. Yeah, you know, I find both of those moving scenes, but for different reasons.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, just in even just contextually, like the Homer is much more of a story because we don't have any backgrounds, we don't know mm-hmm. what of it. It, you know, was yeah. dependent upon the the history at the time. We have no idea. So it has to be just a story to mm-hmm. us. Whereas because, yeah, because Virgil was so much later and because we have so much more evidence, you can look into it and actually see these complexities and understand it mm-hmm. all. Um, I mean, yeah, you've convinced me to the point of wishing that I could go back and redo a bunch of episodes.
5: <laughs> no, um, <it's>, I, <laughs> I think it's great because, like, I, whatever you said, because I haven't, you know, for the reader, I haven't heard these episodes yet. Yeah. But, um, but the... Uh, the story is what the story is. Like, I think it's fine to tell the story. And I don't like, Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I have my moments of defensiveness about the Aeneid. But in general, I don't <laughs> really, because I think you come to it when you come to it and in the way you come to it. And, you mm-hmm. know, it is the story it is. Um, and the Aeneid is different than Aeneas and all the rest of it. But I think yeah. it's, you know, it's all about the layers, right? It's all about you learn one layer about it. And then you if you can be intrigued enough to peel the other layers back, it starts to repay mm-hmm. it.
4: And I haven't done the last episode at the time that you and I are recording this, and I think that's wonderful. <laughs> so now I'm very excited to be able to do like the last. I think it will be won't be one episode, but it might be two, um, of of it actually like being able to go into it a little bit, little bit deeper there. Even just mm-hmm. the way that I've just talked a lot about the propaganda, but without having looked too deep into Virgil himself, and just sort of like a mm-hmm. surface level of propaganda because on the surface it's very obvious a lot of it. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I love being able to to know a little bit more now. Yeah, that's the thing about having a weekly podcast where you have to retell ancient things. It, there's not a lot of time to do too much in depth. Do the background, background. yeah. Like I go a lot <laughs> no, of like I, I finished my BA in 2012, and whatever I remember is going to go in there. But like I don't have a lot of ability beyond that.
5: And you're mostly doing the Greek stuff, so you know you have a bunch of context there. And to when you move into the Roman, like. As you say, we have a lot of context, but that means we have a lot yeah, of Yeah, there's so much more. So like, some, like, I could just talk to you about the eclogues and the, and the Civil War for, like, you know, entire classes worth. Uh, that's the, <laughs> yeah. the point, right? Like, you could go on and yeah. on and on about it. But yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Well, and it's funny because I did take, I took equal levels of, like, Roman to Greek history and everything in, in university. Mm-hmm. But the amount... Of Greek that I remember compared to Roman I think I definitely remember a lot of Roman history but in terms of like the the art and the mythology and the like literature it's all Greek Mm -hmm. in my head for sure (laughs) yeah
5: yeah no I uh do not think you are alone in that (laughs) let's put it that way um you know there's there's a lot of really gripping and wonderful stuff I'm teaching Roman uh, Greek myth right now and it's Greek it's classical myth but you know we spent one class on yeah. Roman. It was all yeah. Greek. Like- <laughs> yeah.
4: thank God for *Metamorphoses*. Though, I like, I live yeah. for *Metamorphoses*. That's the one Latin thing yeah. that I will go back to time and time again. And in *Cupid and yeah. Psyche*, I haven't actually read the rest of *Apuleius*, but. Cupid and Psyche is yeah.
5: magnificent. Psyche, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Apuleius. It's, yeah, know, I've read it's bits
4: in it, and I'm like, yeah. The, I mean, he. he no, I, that's what I mean in Roman. Like, yeah, it, the the yeah. Roman I love of, of Cupid and Psyche, but but the rest of it's like, what what's actually going on here? I think.
5: <laughs> yeah. Oh no, the rest of that that is a weird yeah, novel. That is I've not, yeah, I've read bits. That is outside my wheelhouse, but I I know good good stuff about it. But it uh, and and it has. Many of the same sorts of things I like in a lot of literature, but I have not spent the time on it, yeah. it for, to fully understand <laughs> Something it. Else.
4: Something mouse, Something mouse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this.
5: Um, oh, it was an absolute uh, pleasure. I know that we talked longer than you probably <laughs> wanted, but... I am
4: thrilled with it. I've got such good content. I learned so much. I My favorite thing is when I get to talk to people where I'm just sitting here, like, big smile on my face, like, taking in all this information, um, so I'm very, I'm very glad I, I tweeted and got a response
5: from you. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm very glad too. Oh, uh, pretty much most of the best things that have happened in my life in the last few years have come from random tweets. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep doing yeah. that.
4: Yeah, no, t- I mean, Twitter, the the whole like world of classics, Twitter is, is mm-hmm. very fun. Whatever part I'm in it now, it's, it's magnificent. <laughs> I love it. You have a podcast and video series and everything yourself, too. Do you want to talk yeah, about that a
5: little bit? Sure. Yeah, I have a podcast. I'm on a podcast with my husband called The Endless Knot, uh, where we talk about a lot of different things. But etymology and the history of language is sort of the the core. Um, but we talk a lot. And that's my husband's stuff. So I tend to be mostly jumping in with a lot of Roman <laughs> context. Good. And he talks about medieval stuff. And so we talk about other things. But we also do like, you know reviews of Star Wars movies and stuff occasionally. So it's it's a a, kind of all (laughs) over the place. And then we also have a series on YouTube uh, on the channel is Alliterative. Uh, YouTube.com slash alliterative, which has videos about etymology. So those really are their histories of words and the cultural connections, cultural historical connections to the words. Um, the most recent one was about the word monster, for instance, so, which does have, uh, it's very long. Uh, we've gotten a little out of control recently, so that one's very long. The one before that was about the history of gu- the word guitar. Lots of different things. So uh, oh, that's so fun. if you want to see those, you can go to YouTube. And we. if you want to see any of the stuff we do, um, just... Uh, alliterative.net is the website that has everything on it so yeah and and I will put
4: that in the podcast as well the podcast description will have that link
5: and my on twitter I should just say also I'm avensarah a-v-e-n-s-a-r-a-h so I would always be happy to talk more Aeneid with anybody if they (laughs) want it's very fun you want to tell me where I'm wrong (laughs) go right ahead I will chat with you on twitter Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you.
4: Ugh, nerds, thank you all for listening to that bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed it. What a perfect way to cap off the Aeneid. It has been a trip. Thank you all for listening. I am Liv, and I love this shit.
0: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers.